You're listening to the Sales Process Excellence Podcast with Michael Webb. Hello. Some people focus on selling skills, like reaching decision makers or internet marketing. Other people focus on work processes, like measuring data and systems thinking. But not many people talk about how these can be brought together to motivate people and create wealth for everyone. And that's what we discuss in the Sales Process Excellence Podcast. I'm Michael Webb, and today I am really excited for you to meet my guest, Amir Ganad, the author of The Transformative Leader, Boldly Declare, Courageously Pursue, and Abundantly Achieve the Extraordinary. Amir, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I am really looking forward to our discussion uh, because uh, your, your topic uh, leadership is so critical to sales and marketing organizations, and a ton, a ton has been written about that in the sales profession, and in the leadership community of leading companies. But a lot of what's out there repeats some version of things that, at least in the sales def- profession, you know, people have been talking about for. 40 years or more, you know, things like six ways to motivate your sales team to close more deals or how to select better sales candidates. And there are a few authors who address the interpersonal side of leadership and and what leadership really is, Uh, but in my view, they're missing a lot of uh, awfully crucial elements that salespeople and the companies they work for desperately need. So, when I saw you speak at the Shingle Conference here in Atlanta a couple years ago, and then I got your book, I was really impressed, and you offer some really key pieces of the puzzle, and I know that there's people in my audience that are going to be really interested uh, to learn about your point of view and, and uh, your approach to this. So before we get started, could you tell us where you came from and what you've done in your career that's earned your reputation in, in this arena? I sp- suspect that uh, a lot of people coming from a sales and marketing background um, or an engineering background, they may not know about your work. Thank you so much. Again, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, uh, glad to, uh, to talk to uh, your audience about this topic because I'm really passionate about the sort of spreading the message of transformative leadership and how it applies to various industries. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. If I go way back, I uh, grew up in Iran, came to the States when I was 16 years old uh, on my own, and uh, essentially uh, got my education. I have a master's in mechanical engineering from Georgia Tech, and uh, later on got an MBA. I uh, started working with Procter & Gamble, in uh, 1985 and was with them for about uh, 19 years, uh, different parts of the world, uh, spent some time in uh, five years in Thailand, three years in in Germany, uh, and different places in the U.S. Uh, Then I uh, left and joined the Sunny Delight Beverages Company, was with them for about eight and a half years, and uh, finally in the last part of my uh, corporate career, I spent four years uh, with Campbell Soup uh, leading the uh, Global People Excellence uh, effort there and uh, with a variety of locations and all that. And two years ago, I left. I say I rewired, and essentially I'm doing this uh, on my own with my uh, family. We are the Ganad Group, and uh, I do leadership coaching and uh, consulting. I basically guide leaders in creating uh, extraordinary cultures that deliver breakthrough results. Um, so... That's a little bit about me uh, and how I've gotten here. Well, so so give us a little thumbnail description of um, 
um, I guess there's two, two questions here. A thumbnail description and example to sort of concretize the problems that a leadership, uh, a leader of an organization has. So you were a plant manager at one time, as I understand, and yep. you were faced with some pretty awful demands and requirements. Um, and the, the, the undesirable things that were going on among the people in the organization and what you had to do to fix that. I guess that's the first question, and, and, and maybe that would answer the second question, which is explain what transformative leadership means. What do you mean by that? So take a Sure. Shot. Yeah, you know, I had a, a 19 years under my belt, essentially, had had a pretty good amount of success when I... Uh, came into an assignment that turned out to be uh, the greatest challenge of my career and uh, basically took over a leadership of a plant uh, that had been doing pretty well uh, historically, but uh, they didn't have a lot of uh, demand on their time, essentially. They could make everything they needed in three days or so, uh, but then the company was acquired right around when I came in and uh, complexity went up, volume went up, and the style of leadership that was being used at the time just was not sufficient. Uh, so we very quickly found ourselves being the worst plant in the company, and we were a critical part of the company as we produced about a third of all the product that was produced at the company. So uh, we really were uh, forced into a situation where uh, we had to figure out a better way. And uh, quite honestly, where this notion of transformative leadership came from was that I thought I was pretty good at doing what I was doing, and, and nothing like that I'd learned in the past was working. Uh, so I had to really do a lot of soul searching to figure out what's going on, and that is when I really discovered that if I'm going to make any positive impact, it has to start with me. Uh, because I was, uh, you know, I hate to admit that for some time I was quite... Uh, self-righteous. I was looking out there saying, hey, you know, only if my bosses got how awesome I was, things would be better, only if these people in this plant would trust me and do what I said. And so it was everybody else's fault. But at some point during this journey, it really hit me that, you know what, if it's to be, it's up to me. I am the greatest barrier. And so I started really developing a lot of insights just for myself. And then I started really uh, coaching the people in the plant at various levels. And uh, ultimately, what we did was we ended up turning the plant around from being the worst to the best and within about a year and a half. And that's how uh, I got into more sort of broad-scale uh, speaking because I took that message out on the road and, and things like that. Uh, so but the second part of your question, just to say a couple of more words about that, uh, is you know, for me, transformative leadership has to do with going beyond just learning new leadership skills and being transformed. So informative training puts some information and some knowledge and some tools on you. But transformative training causes you to see what's in your way so you can get it out of your way and show up as the transformative leader that you already are. And so what I have in my book and what I speak on is really... Uh, about everybody recognizing that they're already a leader and the reason they don't show up that way and they don't feel that way from time to time is that there's something in the way and these are what I call the hidden saboteurs of success and fulfillment. And when you get those out of the way, you find yourself showing up as the transformative leader that's going to have an impact on the lives of people around them. So I know right away that that whole 
um, tone and that whole approach is going to resonate with really good salespeople because everybody has to grow up in their life and and learn to recognize when they're, as they say, telling instead of selling. And often they have to unlearn the sales training that they got earlier in their career and not be thinking about what their question is they're going to ask next or how they're going to overcome this objection. They have to quiet themselves and deeply listen to what the customer is saying and be able to utilize that information to ask even better questions of them. And it is a uh, transformation that people have to make within themselves. They have to become self-aware and how they're projecting themselves and conduct themselves in a manner that accounts for what they're perceiving from the people. Absolutely. I think, you know, when it, you know I, I sort of cut my teeth on this stuff in manufacturing. I spent 31 years, and most of that time in corporate work was in manufacturing and supply chain, but toward the latter part of my career, uh, so the, the, the other uh, functions began to notice that this stuff was really working, so they started pulling me in, and certainly afterwards, as a consultant, I have worked with finance uh, groups and sales groups and marketing groups, and what one thing I can tell you is, you know, it's important to have some functional mastery and expertise in what you do. So uh, as a salesperson, it's great to have the tools and the methodologies and that kind of thing. But you know what? A lot of times your effectiveness is not really determined by whether you're a functional expert or not because there are a lot of functional experts out there, experts out there. Uh, the difference is made by who you are and how you show up. You know, what do you bring with you? How are you perceived? And that is often uh, the result, the direct result of what's going on in your head. You know, if, if you are just thinking about how can I sell this thing to these people and what's that next thing I'm going to say and, and what kind of scheme can I use and all of this, then you show up a certain way and you know what, nobody wants to deal with you. But if you really do some, you know, basically understand a little bit what's going on with you, have a little bit of self-awareness, then you can use those tools and methodologies so much more effectively. So um, could you give us an example from your experience of an undesirable, I call it an undesirable result, a, a, a problem that someone in the organization you were leading was having, and what you discovered you were bringing to the party that prevented them from seeing the problem or from from uh, improvement from taking place. So one of those barriers you were talking about, if you could illustrate that, it would make it more concrete. Yeah, absolutely. We have, uh, you know, I have tons of examples of that, but, uh, you know, I would bring up one of the, the, the uh, you know, the, the examples that I, that I have, the ones that are really near and dear to my heart, are the ones where uh, people have actually taken these concepts and made a difference in their own personal life. Uh, now, the, the results that we get at work are kind of always there. Uh, but, you know, I have this one guy, you know, we talk about uh, some of the training that I do. I talk about 100% commitment versus... Uh, 50-50 commitment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you could be 100% committed to something, and what that means is no matter what kind of barriers come your way and that sort of thing, you're going to push through and you're going to make it happen. But if you're 50-50 committed, if your com uh, commitment is conditional and partial, then what happens is you're just basically looking for an excuse to say, I've done my part. 
Uh, well, you know what? Uh, over the years, I have tons of examples where when the light bulb goes off for people, they just go out and deliver extraordinary results. So I'll give you two very quick examples of that. One of those is a, is a fellow that was in a four-hour session with me, and and uh, several months, uh, about four months after uh, the session, I heard that he had lost uh, 30 pounds. And, and I went and talked to him, and he was telling everybody it was because of the session. And I went and talked to him, <laughs> and he said, you know, I have basically gotten off track with uh, my eating and exercise and all of that. And after that session, every single day I woke up and I said, are you 100% or are you 50-50? And he got basically back on track. And, and uh, the last time I spoke to him, he had lost 60 pounds. Uh, he had gone back to school and got his uh, graduate degree, uh, which he had basically given up on. And he ended up marrying the woman that he was about to... Uh, you know, break up with, in his own words, because he was a jerk. And, and so great things started happening for him. Now, there was another fellow that basically was about to uh, get uh, fired. He was in the fourth, uh, in, in the third, and the final step of our disciplinary process. And we had several conversations and coaching sessions and all of this kind of stuff. And the light bulb went off for him, and essentially he began to take responsibility to say, look, I'm not going to look for somebody else to change this for me. I take responsibility for this. And I tell you, that, that person has gotten five promotions since then and is, is absolutely the highest contributor in the organization that they're in right now. Uh, so there are lots of examples. When you see this light bulb of what is holding you back, you're not dependent on somebody else to remove that barrier. You remove the barrier, and you become really empowered to make things happen. Um, there's a, a few examples from the military of leadership. And yep. what you're saying, I'm trying to remember, um, it's not coming to mind right now, but, but that issue of commitment, um, is is clearly a component of what they're they're talking about, and I guess, I guess I would guess that the leader has to demonstrate that in order to help the light bulb come go off, right? Well, yeah. To me, the leader's job is to create the conditions in which everyone is willingly uh, signing up to be one hundred percent committed. You know, oftentimes leaders go around sort of beating people up and all of that. And if all you're looking for is compliance, you just want them to do a job and that's what you're looking for, maybe that'll work for you for some period of time. But if you're looking for commitment, you're never going to make people commit. Uh, that's something that people have to offer uh, by their free will. Uh, so to me, it's about creating the conditions. Now, what does that look like? From time to time, it might be providing the right training and support. From time to time, it might be uh, you know, showing your care and concern. Sometimes it might be bringing the right systems in place to make the, the you know, job a little bit easier for people. Uh, the personal integrity, you know, just recognizing and demonstrating that, uh, you know, these are people uh, in the organization. They're not machines, and, and you care about them. So there are a lot of different ways in which we earn people's trust, and at the end of the day, there comes a moment of truth where they offer up their commitment. And it's priceless when they do that because I no longer have to work, you know, look over the shoulder and tell them what to do. Right. right, right. All right. So then let me ask this question because not all organization, the processes that are in those organizations are actually capable of achieving the results that the company desires. 
Yep. And in a situation like that, even if you get the commitment of the people, it's not going to succeed. So how do you distinguish between when it's a systemic problem and when it's an individual problem? Well, I would always, uh, you know, go fall back on the fact that it is always a, a commitment issue. Uh, and the reason is this, uh, that in some organizations uh, where the systems uh, are uh, falling apart and they're not working, if the people are committed, if the leaders have truly uh, taken on this role of servant leadership and they have gotten the organization to the point where they're committed, people are often smart enough to come up with a solution or at least make a proposal or push for the right things. And in those organizations, they end up putting the right systems in place because the commitment is there to close that gap. Now, where the problem comes in is that uh, in many organizations, there's not this uh, commitment. There's like, hey, I see the system is broken and it's taking me so many more hours to do this or it's reducing my productivity or my performance, but you know what, I'm not going to go against the system because they don't have any interest in listening to me. Uh, so I think if the leaders take it from a, take a, a position of, look, I know that most of our problems are not people problems, they're, they're system problems. People want to be part of something extraordinary, but the way to solve those problems is, A, if I see a system that is broken, you know what, I need to fix it. I need to improve it so I can empower the people uh, so they can have good systems to work with. But B, I need to create the conditions to where everybody feels like they are part of the solution and that they want to go that extra mile to bring up the suggestions uh, and solve these problems. And, and I guess it's that attitude and mentality that um, hopefully will create an interest and a need for some of the tools that are introduced yes. in process improvement. Yes, you know, I, I really believe, you know, uh, I want to make sure that I'm real clear, that I'm not suggesting that organizations just sort of uh, inspire people and just sing kumbaya and all of this kind of stuff and don't really pay attention to tools. Ultimately, tools and systems are the things that are going to help us deliver the results. Uh, what I am suggesting is that oftentimes uh, organizations have sort of this false sense of uh, you know, progress when they install a brand new system or they put in a new tool. And, and then they just kind of say, you know what, you got this tool, what's wrong with you? Just go make it happen. Well, you know what, there's a human element to it. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've seen really failed uh, attempts at really shifting the system by putting an IT system in place that nobody's using. Uh, and so I think it's really important right. to have process excellence and the right leadership behaviors and attitudes at all levels of the organization, but they got to go hand in hand. So I once did some work with a team, um, and the salespeople were all engineers, and so, you know, they're sort of process-oriented, and we got them to go through the work of, you know, defining first the stages the customer goes through, and they agreed on that, and then the stages that the salespeople themselves, you know, had to go through in order to help the customer make those uh, action steps. But it was clear that they were, they were not committed. They were not bought in. Um, 
And as we, you know, did the why, why, why on that, um, the reason became real obvious um, because the sales force was constantly being um, put in the position of uh, they're, so, they're selling a complex engineered capital equipment product, right? Mm -hmm. And yep. they may have a nine-month lead time. And so seven months out, two months before ship date, they get a message from the engineering team. Um, you know that modification we quoted for you guys seven months ago? Um, well, uh, we found out that it's not going to work the way we thought. And so it's going to be another three months and uh, another $200,000. And the sales force had to put their company face on and go out and give the customer this bad news. And the customer had already laid the concrete and, you know, put the conduit out there and the power and hydraulics and they were ready to go. And here we can't deliver. And so to the sales force, what's the point of having a process if we're not going to deliver on the commitments that we made? You know, it just is very, very, and and so when we got that out on the table, um, we were able to bring the president of the company in and presented this process to them and told them about this problem. And he was able to say, uh, there was one decision block, decision diamond, right in the middle of the process that said, we commit to this quote. And he said, if you guys follow the process, and we get to that point and we accept the quote, I will absolutely go to bat for you with the rest of the company and say that we're accountable for delivering on that stuff. And it's our problem, not the customer's problem, when we screw up. Boy, the light, the eyes lit up around the room. I mean, that enabled them to buy in. So is that the kind of thing that you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. I think you know, for for me, a lot of uh, a lot of organizations, unfortunately, operate in silos, and they kind of feel like, hey, we're on our own, uh, and if we don't protect ourselves, uh, then uh, you know, those guys are gonna uh, are not gonna deliver on their uh, commitments and all that. So I think that's absolutely it. I think we need to be committed to making sure that we not only have a process in place, but we follow it. But not only that, it's like, why is it that uh, one department doesn't feel like they can sort of at least serve up the early signs of uh, trouble, and they have to wait until seven months into this journey? Because I'm sure somebody had some indication at some point. Uh, so I want people to not only uh, follow the process, uh, but also go beyond the process and say, look, I'm going to go out of my way to really communicate very clearly and not try to sort of protect myself or my uh, function, <laughs> you know, because that way we get to all sort of say, hey, you know what, from time to time things happen and we have to come together and, and deal with it. Uh, but, uh, you know, don't wait until the last minute because you skipped this part of the process and you just didn't want to come over and talk to me uh, to lay this down on me and now I have a huge problem. So, I'm guessing that you would say that the approach that you're taking, this um, sort of transparency that a leader must take on and vulnerability that they must display in order to demonstrate that they too are committed, um, that would fall into the category of uh, the dimming principles of uh, like respect for people. Absolutely. Are there any other of the dimming principles that you think 
uh, relate to to leadership here? No, I mean, Deming, I think absolutely, of course, was ahead of his time, and, and there's nothing that he said that I would say I disagree with. I think, you know, one of the things that I remember uh, when I first started 30 some odd years ago uh, in a tissue uh, plant was, and that's when I started uh, sort of learning about Deming and his principles. You know, we had a person sitting at the case packer, and uh, this person had uh, these uh, packages of uh, tissue, toilet tissue, going by them, uh, that, whatever, 300 packages a minute. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to inspect every one of these packages to make sure there were no holes in the package or anything like that. And, you know, imagine at 3 o'clock in the morning, you're kind of half sleepy or whatever, and this is happening. And, by the way, if one got through and QA found it, then you were sent home or something like that because mm -hmm. you messed up. Well, at that point, I, I really got very clear that when, when Deming talks about, you know, it's the, it's the process, it's not the, the, the people. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's like, let's make sure that we have a robust process and not blame the people. Uh, and, and so that, to me, kind of stuck with me to say, you know what, if something goes wrong, I'm not going to automatically assume that people are lazy, this whole theory X, kind of thing, right? The people are lazy, it's their fault, and all of this. I'm going to assume that everybody wants to be part of something extraordinary. So something is missing here. So I'm going to uh, uh, support them. I'm going to create the conditions in which we can together uh, sort of uh, fix the, the, uh, the, the system. Uh, or in some cases, if they have a problem with, you know, occasionally somebody's going to have a performance problem. You know, you're not going to have 100% uh, superstars, maybe, because people make different choices. But in those cases, we treat that, those people with respect and dignity, but we're very clear with them and we hold them to high standards uh, so that they can find a way uh, to rise to the occasion and make these things happen. So, so to me, all of that is really aligned with Dr. Deming's uh, you know, principles. So uh, another question, and this one may kind of sound a little off the walls. As you're describing this, and I'm agreeing, uh, um, and, and I have to ask an example uh, from, a, from a sales situation. And, and I've seen this in multiple instances, and I, and I remember in particular a client situation where the business is highly dependent upon extremely effective salespeople. And they have to do some research with a, a small group of people in a, in a prospect. And then they have to gather that information that they've uh, assembled and what they've learned and what judgments they've made about the people. And they have to make a presentation to them to present value and get them to do what we would not want them to do. Okay. And very clearly, some people are extremely effective at doing it and other people are not so effective at doing it and they both call themselves salespeople and they've both been through sales training before um, but there's just a difference in the way some people are able to do it versus others yep. now um, if it's not about the people it's about the process I mean how do you address that how do you understand that yeah, so that's, and again, I don't think that even Dr. Deming is saying that people are never the issue. I think what he's suggesting, and what I'm certainly suggesting, is that you ought to start with, do 
people have adequate processes to work with. So as a leader, my role is to make sure that the right tools and right processes are in place. And as I mentioned before, it's not just my job. My job also is to create conditions in which people also become part of the solution in improving the, the systems and processes. But in the example that you shared, uh, you know, I think the first question is, well, do we have the right uh, process? And if you have some people who are using the same process and delivering brilliant results, and you have that uh, at an overwhelming level that tells you that, look, there's nothing wrong with the process, if you establish that, then I think it's important uh, to say, okay, why is it that these few people are not effective? Is it that they are missing some skills? Is it that they don't have the right mindset in approaching this? Is it that they haven't had enough training or experience? I think then it becomes really important once you get past this thing of, you know, just don't jump into blaming people first, but check the system first. If the system is adequate, then you say, okay, how can I empower, enable, support this individual to be as successful as they want to be? Uh, and that, I think, is the key. Well, sequence, yeah. That. So, so let's dive into that a little more, um, if yeah. you will, because when you sure. when you analyze those situations, the process that's taking place, first of all, it's largely invisible. Yep. Right. And um, some people have in sales when they present, they teach you a process. Um, it is often just the very rudiments. I mean, there's a lot more to it when you're listening to someone and how you decide what follow-up question to ask. And it's, it's not that it cannot be um, articulated, but it is that it can be very sophisticated, what people are doing between their ears as they're, you know, taking in the, you know, the perceptions, body language, emotion, you know, judgments of, of, of how to sort of play a situation. You can define it in a rudimentary way in a process um, and, and train people on it, but there is a lot of nuance that can take place after you've had experience with it. And um, so it's not that it's not duplicatable, it is that some people end up being way more proficient way more easily. And if they yeah. don't have a practice of articulating that stuff so that they know why they're doing what they're doing, then it's very difficult to communicate it. Most organizations sure. don't have that practice, and they don't know yeah. if they have a good process or not, right? And yeah, so there's a lot of complexity in that. That, that is very true. But you know what? There is also a parallel to that, though, to uh, leadership, uh, right? Because we could send yeah, uh, people to same leadership classes and give them the same tools and all that. But really, their demeanor and how they show up and how they come across and what they're processing. And, they, you know, if somebody's talking to them or they look at them in the eye or they're giving them a, a sort of a, a, a feeling that they're kind of distant, so there are a lot of nuances involved in, in just about everything you look at. To me, what's important is in that situation, you know, it's very difficult for a person to self-diagnose. Uh, you know, when I was going through my challenges in that uh, world that I mentioned to you, uh, for quite some time, I was trying to diagnose myself. And it's like, you know, what the heck is going on with me and so on and so forth. And you just don't see it. I think it's important for you to kind of, again, have the kind of relationships or create the kind of space for you to get 
the right kind of feedback. So in the case of a salesperson, I would say I think it's important for somebody, uh, you know, outside of that person to accompany that person, observe, listen, things like that to provide some feedback. You know, I had some, I had one of the technicians in my plant come into my office one day at 3.30 in the afternoon. He was operating this case stacker, and he got off his shift, and he came into my office. He closed the door, and he told me, he said, Amir, you know what? You're talking the talk, but you're not walking the walk. And, and he enlightened me on something that just was completely hidden from my view. Uh, something I had delegated, but now I was talking about it, but I wasn't really doing the follow through to make sure it was done. And that was the greatest gift for me, mm -hmm. and something I couldn't have done for myself. Uh, so I would say when it comes to those nuances, I think it's really important for someone outside of that person to get close enough to be able to observe some of these things. And quite honestly, a lot of the stuff that I do is applicable to everybody, whether you're a salesperson, you're an engineer. It, it has to do with self-awareness. These are the, the kinds of things that usually sabotage people from actually actualizing and, and delivering what they intend to deliver. Uh, so they go in their head and uh, they're thinking about themselves and their paycheck and whatever. What if I don't make the sale and all that? And whatever's going on out there is uh, not going to be great. Right, right. So, so then let me ask you another uh, question. And again, this one's a little bit off the wall, but I just I want to see how you respond because it is um, it, it's in, endemic. I guess that's the right word to the sales profession, especially in most modern B two B corporations. If you if you had to take over a production facility. And you have these people at various stages of maturity and expertise and attitude and all that. But the organization does not have the fundamental um, measurements to tell when someone's adding value and when they're not adding value. Uh, what work adds value? What work doesn't add value? Um, are we going to make our production quota by the end of the day or by the end of the month or by the end of the year? Um, what is good quality? What's not good quality? You didn't get any of that stuff. Yep. How do you proceed? Well, I think there are some metrics that need to be in place in every organization, and those metrics uh, are really in two uh, categories. One is the output measure. So, uh, you know, you could call them leading and lagging measures, right? As output measures or in-process measures. Uh, because sometimes we get the output because we got lucky. Uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes if you look at the in-process measures, around, if you dig a little bit deeper to say, okay, you know what, this person uh, has, uh, you know, so much more downtime than everybody else in the case of a production operation. Or this person's uh, sales numbers are, you know, 50% less than everybody else. Uh, then I think what you ought to do is dig in a little bit more to say, okay, you know what, what are some, some of the fundamental uh, telltale signs that we, we could be looking for along the way that says uh, this person is really falling short. In case of a salesperson, you know, are they making the right number of calls? Are they, what does their reach look like? What, what, do they just kind of stay with what they're comfortable with? Or are they, uh, you know, and again, I, I can't uh, specifically articulate a lot of those measures, but what is that sort of the next layer where we can say, if you do these fundamental things right, uh, then you're going to improve your performance. So let's look at how well you're doing with the fundamentals. 
Yes. Okay. That's that's um, that's good. Um, and and I um, I agree with that. One of the challenges that I see in sales is that we sort of tend to assume that sales is about what salespeople do. Mm. <laughs> but there's more to the story than that. And yes. the causes of challenges that salespeople face may or may not be in the sales department. And so you have to take a more uh, step back and take a more kind of systemic view of it. And what, you know, the customer goes through these stages and what is the customer really trying to accomplish and what, what value are we creating for the customer in our communications with them, in our, our advertisements, you know, yeah. our newsletters, our product brochures, our spec sheets, our quotations. Are we really giving the customer what they want? Are we really helping them? Um, or are we, you know, trying to get something for ourselves all the time? Is that how we're perceived? And that's a ticklish and, and, and uh, can be challenging thing for organizations to deal with because they've got to bring the revenue in every quarter. Yeah, I think it's, the, it's the, the distinction that I talk about is commitment versus attachment. You see, you can be committed to delivering extraordinary results and making the sale and so on and so forth, but if you're attached to it to the point where you're so scared that if you don't make this happen, some, something's going to happen to you, or, geez, I really want to do whatever it takes to make this happen, then you kind of lose uh, your sight, yeah. uh, you know, you lose sight of what's really important. Uh, and, you know, in, in the case of sales, again, I am not a trained salesperson, but I am in business for myself, and there's a sales element to it. Mm -hmm. uh, I know just just uh, naturally the, the approach that I take is if somebody, if I talk to somebody a couple of times and I send them a proposal and uh, and they end up deciding to go a different way, uh, I go out of my way to make sure that they know that I appreciate being considered and I you know, even offer to them at some point that if you've got any questions, don't feel like you have to hire me, just give me a call back or something like that. And I cannot tell you how many times people have come back you know, six months later, nine months later, saying, hey, you know what, that one didn't work out, but we would like you to come and speak at this event or something. Now, by contrast, you know, I can tell you a few years ago, I picked up the phone in my office on the way to a meeting, but I thought, hey, you know what, let me just answer this phone. And there was a salesperson who says, uh, who starts with this pitch, and I'm like, look, I'm on my way to a meeting. If I can have your phone number, I'll call you back. He says, well, I'm not going to give you my phone number because you're not going to call back. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know what? I really, uh, I'm on my way. I was trying to be nice to the guy. Then he was so belligerent. I said, listen, I, I completely respect your choice. You have two choices. If you give me your number, I may call you back. If you don't give me your number, I definitely won't call you back. So what do you want to do? And he hung up on me. <laughs> I said, you know what? I, somebody like that, my gosh, I, you know... People can tell when somebody is just putting on a face and putting on a show, you don't want to be like that. So a lot of times the reason you're not getting the sales is not because you're not going through the motions and all that. It's who you're being. How are you showing up? Uh, what, what are you bringing into the space? Right. And that's the kind of stuff that has to do with self-awareness. Yes. And yes. And so companies, in order to help salespeople succeed, have to also bring them, create an environment where they can show up the right way and reflect back to them, uh, you know, give them some feedback somehow when they're not showing up the right way. Yes. And, and, and let's face it, a lot of times the reason people have 
that, you know, move up in organizations because they did a good job in their previous job and all that. So uh, what we end up doing is we have people in critical leadership positions or sales positions where they've learned through the school of hard knocks. They've never had any, you know, the stuff that I teach about self-awareness and all of that, you know, you can get a PhD and never be exposed to it. Right. Uh, and, and so unless you're intentional about exposing your people to this sort of thing, what they're going to do is they're going to rely on what they know and sometimes that's adequate, sometimes they naturally can make it happen, and oftentimes they don't know. They don't know what they don't know. So I think it's really important to give people exposure to those kinds of things that they've never been exposed to so they can see these hidden saboteurs that are in their way, get them out of the way, and then go make it happen. Well, and that touches on a topic that I find fascinating, but we won't unfortunately won't have time uh, to go into it today. It's the whole, um, I call it philosophy of how the mind works. Our own mind works, how other people's mind works, and our ability to understand that and be curious about it and leverage it can be extremely valuable to ourselves and to other people. So, Absolutely. Topic for another day. Uh, yeah. Amir, I want to thank you very much for your energy and your insight. Um, really, really good uh, book. The whole concept of commitment and dealing with, with you know, uh, certainty, uh, a bunch of surprises in, in what you have put together there, and it just really, really rings true. Um, and so I, I highly recommend it to my audience. In fact, I'm probably going to do a review of it here in the next few weeks, and I'll publish that as a blog post. If someone wants to get a hold of you um, and learn more about you and learn about the book, where should they go? Thank you so much, Mike, for having me on. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, you know, the book, Transform The Transformative Leader, is available on my website where I also publish uh, weekly blog posts and podcasts on leadership, culture transformation, all kinds of uh, things of this sort. Uh, so the website is the Ganad Group. It's uh, spelled T-H-E-G-H-A-N-N-A-D group.com. Uh, but in case you can't remember my name, you can go to whatwasthatguysname.com, and that will bring you to my website as well. So. <laughs> That's pretty brilliant. Good <laughs> for you. Super. So I would love to have you on again uh, in the future. So uh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll be talking again soon, I hope. Absolutely. Thank you so much. The Sales Process Excellence Podcast is sponsored by Sales Performance Consultants. Discover how to improve your B2B sales with systems thinking at salesperformance.com.